open up to Psalm 119 and let's get stuck into reading together this precious word of God. Psalm 119 verse 17. This is the word of God to us this morning, church. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you this morning for the beautiful privilege of coming and sitting and listening to you. Lord God, we confess this morning as your people, we often do not appreciate the beautiful gift of being able to come freely and listen to you speak. So we pray, come Holy Spirit, work in the hearts of all your people to help us this morning treasure Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, friends, I want to begin this morning by reading to you an excerpt from an article by a a journalist from the Australian newspaper, uh, Nick Catter, entitled, Worried About the Teen Gender Craze, You Don't Have a Prayer. And Nick Catter writes the following. Legislation before the Victorian Parliament will make the act of prayer a criminal offence in some circumstances. Yet in an era when it's cool to self-identify as anything but a Christian, hardly anyone is making a fuss. The pretext for the bill is transphobia, a contagion for which the Andrews government believes the church is a super spreader. It will be illegal to counsel a person to change or suppress their chosen gender identity. Prohibited actions include carrying out a religious practice, including but not limited to a prayer-based practice. The prohibition applies whether or not the subject consented to the prayer-based activity. The penalty is up to 10 years imprisonment or an enormous fine. Complaints can be made anonymously and come from any person, even those not affected. In other words, it is a charter for anti-religious activists to harass and intimidate churches or individuals at no cost to themselves. Now, this article was written just over one year ago, and the Change or Suppression Conversion Practices Bill easily passed the Victorian Upper House and is now law in Victoria. To be clear, 
conversion therapy, which I take to mean forcing young people to change their identity by spurious or pseudoscientific means, or even making well-intentioned promises about things the Bible doesn't promise, is a horrible practice. But it may come as a surprise to many to realize we live in a country where the government in some states has created laws which seek to govern the content of a person's prayers. It's possible, in light of this, in the future, that some of us, having prayed for a friend struggling to follow Christ amidst a wrestle with gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction, may find yourself charged with criminal conduct. Now, the reason it comes as a surprise to us, I believe, is we live in a peaceful and prosperous society. And it's easy to believe that the Christian life is to be equally peaceful and prosperous. But the world we live in, friends, is not neutral towards the things of Christ. The Bible teaches that it is fundamentally opposed to them and that this has been the case since Genesis 3, the very beginning. See, the teaching of the Bible is if you are a follower of Christ, you live in the midst of a hidden spiritual war. Now, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, 12 on this topic says this. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, Paul saw his life as a wrestle. He's taking imagery from the Greco-Roman games, a, a combat, the wrestling between two men in the arena, but not against people, not against uh, flesh and blood, says Paul. This is a spiritual war. The enemy isn't a political party. It's not a premier or leader or colleague or neighbor. It's a spiritual enemy. It's the hidden forces of evil at work in the world that oppose the kingdom of God, that oppose the rule of Jesus Christ. And the question I want us to think about together as a church this morning is this. If there's a spiritual war raging, how are you going to survive? You know, Paul in the same passage compares preparation symbolically uh, to that of a soldier putting on armor to prepare for a war. And after listing various important items for the soldier and describing what they symbolize, He highlights the item for which our passage this morning is most concerned. He says the following in Ephesians 6, 17. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How can we remain faithful in the midst of the spiritual battle of life, friends? With the sword of this Word. If you're a note taker this morning, I've entitled uh, this message, A Joy-Filled Guide for Life. And we're going to be looking this morning at three different ways this psalmist is equipped with this sword, this word, to walk through life. Three different points that we're going to be taking from this passage, but one hope for us this morning, and that is this, that we would find joy-filled guidance in feasting on this living word. That's what I want for us this morning. That's what I believe is the burden of this passage, that we would find joy-filled guidance 
for life as we feast on this living word. So that's where we're going this morning. But to begin a bit of context for this psalm, if you're not new to us, this is the mighty redwood of the great psalms in the Bible. It's more than twice as long as the nearest psalm. It's 176 verses long. And it's an acrostic poem with each stanza, each section being eight verses long, all beginning with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it covers all 22 of the letters. Um, each is written as a meditation, and each of these sections is written as a meditation devoted to the wonderful theme of delighting in the Word of God. Uh, Alan Ross, in his commentary, summarizes the heart of this psalm better than anyone else. He, he puts it this way. He says, Finding himself in persecution from powerful people who ridicule his faith in an effort to shame him into abandoning it, the psalmist strengthens himself by his detailed meditations on the word of the Lord, which is his comfort, his prized possession, his rule of life, his resource for strength, and his message of hope, all of which inspire him to desire it even more, to live by it, and to pray for its fulfillment. In the midst of persecution from powerful people, the psalm, uh, psalmist or the writer of Psalm 119 finds comfort in God's word. And so uh, I guess a couple of years ago, we looked at the first stanza, which really talks about the blessing, uh, Aleph, the blessing from uh, walking in the instruction of the Lord, the psalmist longing to be that kind of man. The second stanza looks at the word and how it keeps the psalmist's way clean and helps him to stay on the path of life. And the third stanza, Gimel or G, which is the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, the psalmist is talking about this word that gives him guidance and joy in the midst of opposition that we're going to be getting stuck into this morning together. So let's dive into point number one for all you note takers out there. Point number one, he sees following the word as central to his purpose in life. The psalmist sees that following the word of God is central to his purpose in life. I want to ask you a question. If I were to ask you this morning, what's your purpose in life? What would you say? If I was to ask you, why are you here on earth? Why do you exist? How would you answer that question? Well, some of us in this room, room this size or listening online... You might say, oh, it's just no purpose. It's an accident uh, of a blind universe. It's pure chance that I'm here. Uh, many would say, I'm sure in this age, I'm not sure. I haven't really thought about it much. We live in an age where people are, are so busy uh, entertaining themselves, distracting themselves. They often don't think about these deeper questions of life. Others might say that it's because, well, enjoyment of life, to enjoy life, to, to follow my dreams, to be true to myself, to live for my kids, or to make a difference in the world, to have a successful career, to make my parents proud, or or even a, a, a great, huge, unachievable goal, to own a home in Sydney. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was written in the 17th century, neatly summarizes the Bible's teaching on this topic, the answer to this question. The Bible says, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, Man's chief end, that's man's main purpose, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were made by God for the purpose of his glory, to point to his incredible worth, to point to his incredible goodness, his value, his power, his wisdom, and to worship him. 
And the Bible teaches that this purpose is the purpose of all people, whether you're a Christian or you're not. And more, our purpose is not only to worship God, but for relationship with Him. To enjoy God forever, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. To find great enjoyment in God for all eternity. See, the psalmist saw that following God's word was therefore central to his purpose in life. Following the word for him meant following God himself. And we read this in verse 17 of our passage. Read read it with me again. He says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. You know, later in this passage, we're going to see that this psalmist's life is under genuine threat. There are people who are openly mocking him and plotting his downfall. And he's crying out to God for mercy. He's saying, deal bountifully with your servant. I've been serving you faithfully, God, and I want you to rescue me. That I might live. He's saying, it's looking like I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be murdered by these people. Lord, be gracious to me so that I might live. And how would you finish that sentence? So that I might live and see my grandbabies, pay off the mortgage, retire up the coast, marry my crush, travel around the world, be there for my kids. No. So that I might live and keep your word. I want to live, God, to keep your word more and more, says the psalmist. Here's a difficult question for us this morning, church. Is that how we view this word? Do we think of following this word as being central to the purpose for which we exist? The truth is, it's so easy to have so much wrong thinking about the word of God. A dusty old book with little relevance to my life. A source of constant guilt. Maybe the thing I should be doing. And so I hate it when someone asks me how I'm going in reading the word. Honestly, for some of us, for, for all of us at time to time, boring and difficult to understand. Little joy. And the reality becomes, it so easily becomes an add-on. We read it occasionally at the end of the day if we have time. And so the question I want us to think about is, what, what does this guy know that we're missing this morning? Well, the psalmist sees that these are the very words of God himself written for us. The psalmist could see that this word is filled with the very mind and heart of God. He saw himself as God's servant, living to love and please God. He saw it was a gift of grace that he didn't deserve, given for his good to know him and love him. And so he repeats this same idea of just extending his life to live more in light of this over and over again. Verse 88, in your steadfast love, give me life that I might keep the testimonies of your mouth. Verse 112, incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Verse 117, hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continuously. Verse 146, I call to you, save me that I may observe your testimonies. He wants God to extend his life so that he would have more time to serve him from this word. Now friends, we don't know who wrote this psalm. But we do know it was written hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus. And though this psalmist clearly loved God so much, he could not see 
the fullness of the heart of God that we see in Jesus. That God would become man and live the righteous life we failed to live. That God would die in the person of his son in our place upon that cross, saving us and perfectly revealing his heart towards us. That every page of scripture in effect points to the self-sacrificial heart of God revealed in Jesus who is the word of God himself become flesh. He couldn't see all that. And we can see something of the beauty of and majesty of God that this writer could not see. It should motivate us not to snack on the word of God and feast on Netflix and gaming and Foxtel and YouTube, but to feast on this word of God, to make it the central priority of every day because we love Christ and we want to know him more and more and to be like him. You know, a year ago when I was preaching on this uh, psalm, I used this illustration. I think it's so helpful. Uh, I use this illustration about my wife, Charlotte. You know, imagine, friends, if I said to you, I love my wife, Charlotte, so much. She, I love her because she's, she's beautiful, she's kind, she's servant-hearted. But when she speaks, I mean, boring. She goes on and on, and I rarely listen. I rarely listen. I wait for her to finish, and... And then we can get on. I mean, is that genuine love? Is that revealing of a heart that truly loves Charlotte, my wife? Of course not. Because I love my wife, I love the things she says. I treasure them. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, following this word ought to be central in your life, not because you have to, but because you love Christ. And deeply care about the things that he says. Well, that's point number one. He sees that following this word should be central to his purpose in life. But point number two, the psalmist also sees that this word as his guidance while he's far from home. He sees containing this word as guidance for him while he's far from home. Now, friends, if you've ever lived overseas, you will realize that that simple things become very difficult in a foreign place. You know, I lived in Indonesia uh, in 2008 and 2009, and I tell you, I felt very, very far from home. Uh, there's the sound of mosques five times a day calling you to pray. There's the fact that Friday is Sunday in a lot of the Muslim world. There's driving. I mean, that's chaos. I mean, rules are su- are suggestions in Indonesia, and it's very confusing, and I felt very scared for a long time. Uh, opening a bank account, doing the groceries, getting the internet fixed, ordering food, buying credit for your phone, a simple day out, you go out to do these things, you return home exhausted from the effort involved. You know, when you're not at home, you realize that you need a lot of help to get by. But the reverse is also true. When you're at home, it's easier to believe you can get by just fine without any help at all. Now, sometimes I don't even remember driving to work in the morning. I arrive at the office and I'm like, how did I even get here? I don't even remember. It's so automatic. You know where everything is in your house. You don't need to be told. You know all the shortcuts and all the back streets all around this neighborhood because it's home. It's so familiar. And the psalmist sees that because he's trying to live for God, he will never truly be at home. And so he desperately needs help. He desperately needs guidance. 
Read with me verse 18. He says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes, or perhaps better, uncover my eyes to behold or to stare intently at wonderful things in your law, in your Torah, in your instruction. See, the psalmist longs to see the the wonderful things written in God's instruction, written in God's word. He, He wants to stare intently at them and be changed by them. And people are coming and conspiring against him, and he is desperate for more understanding from God's word. But let's focus in a moment on the first few words of his prayer. He says, open. He says, uncover my eyes. See, the reason the writer of the psalm asks for God to uncover his eyes is not because the Bible is unclear. No, the Bible is perfectly clear and able to be understood, but it's because his eyes are covered. See, the problem is with us. So often we read the Bible and we're completely disinterested because our hearts have been captured by other things. Holidays and food and kids and work and relationships. And if that's how you've been feeling when you read the Bible, you're not alone. Because that's exactly the problem that the psalmist was facing. And so he cries out to God for help. And later on in Psalm 119 and verse 36, the psalmist says this. He says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Verse 37, he says, turn my heart from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. You see, we're so tempted to put more value in the things that are completely worthless compared to the Lord's, the, the, the Lord Jesus, that we need his help to even read his word. You know, Matt Smethurst, in his uh, excellent book on this topic, entitled Before You Read the Bible, uh, he says the following. He says, Approaching scripture apart from prayer is one of the most counterproductive things we do. For prayerless Christianity is powerless Christianity. In many ways, reading the Bible is like reading other books. We ought to approach it the way we'd approach any piece of literature, being sensitive to genre and setting, the author's intent, and all that other good stuff. But there is one major difference. The third person of the eternal trinity breathed out its words. And the Spirit loves bringing God's word to life day after day in the hearts of those blinded by the tyranny of worthless things. What has captured your imagination? What is enamoring the eyes of your heart? When you open your Bible, don't expect to be put under some mystical spell. Speak directly with the author. Ask the Spirit to unblind you to the beauty staring you in the face. I love that so much. We need to invite God's help to help us read and understand his words. When we read on in Psalm 119, verse 19, it says the following. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. The psalmist says, I am a sojourner on earth. The Hebrew word here refers to someone who has left their home or village or tribe because of war or epidemic or blood guilt. And they're seeking shelter and residence in a place where they have Limited rights. The psalmist sees that like an alien or a refugee living in a shelter with no possibility of citizenship, as a servant of God, this is not home. He's desperate for God's direction to help him. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary, writes the following. He says, this is an important truth to know and come to terms with. If you are trying to follow God, 
the world is going to treat you as an alien, for that is what you will be. You cannot expect to be at home in it. And if you are, well, it's an indication that you really do not belong to Christ, or at least are living far from him. Ouch. A powerful truth. If you're following Christ, you will never be at home in this world because this world is not your home. In the words of Jesus, he says the following in John 15, verse 19. He says, if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. See, friends, to follow Christ in a world that stands opposed to him is to live with the reality that your home is not truly here. You are simply passing through. And as a result, the psalmist says and prays, Lord, don't hide your commandments from me. There's this sense of desperation from the psalmist. He needs illumination from God's word to guide him through the dangerous journey of this world. Verse 20, he goes on, he says, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Or perhaps better, I am crushed with longing for your decisions at all times. The psalmist is saying as a sojourner, as an alien, as someone passing through, not at home, there's this deep sense of need I have from, for guidance from you, Lord, each and every day. See, the psalmist is deeply aware of his need for guidance to navigate life in a world opposed to the God that he serves. So my question for us this morning, church, is, once again, is that how we approach this word? With a similar sense of desperation to hear from God. You know, one of the biggest challenges to living on the North Shore of Sydney is that most people, most of the time, feel very little sense of need for God. We're successful, we're wealthy, we're educated, and largely believing that this has all been achieved by ourselves. And as Christians, we can simply fall into a mindset that believes that this is home and have confidence in our ability to navigate it by ourselves and see little need other than the odd crisis for guidance from God. You know, so easily we've lost any sense of the absolute necessity of spending time with the Lord every day, not because it earns approval from with God, but because We need his help each and every day just to get through. And so there may be a kindness to us in the rising antagonism towards Christianity in our culture, reminding us that we are not home and we desperately need to hear from the Lord for guidance each and every day. And so at the start of 2022, would we have a fresh sense of desperation to hear from God as we dive into this world, into this word? Well, not just guidance while far from home, point two, but finally, point number three, the psalmist sees this word as his source of joy when under fire. His source of joy when under fire. You see, the psalmist sees the word of God not only as crucial guidance to help him navigate life during, but during fierce opposition, even fierce opposition, it gives him great delight. And read with me verse 21. He says, You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. 
The psalmist continues by expressing trust in the justice of God towards all people. You rebuke, it doesn't mean just simply that God's going to tell them off, but it's shorthand for bringing a complete end to the works of the insolent or the arrogant, he says. The accursed ones, simply meaning those that are objects of God's anger, who wander away from your commandments. It's a picture of abandoning God's words on the side of the road, like throwing them down and then wandering off away on your journey. The psalmist is saying, I know you'll call to account those who arrogantly are dismissive of what you have to say, God. And so we read on verse 22. He says, take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. You know, more the psalmist has endured public shaming. He's been taunted and treated with contempt. Why? Because he's kept or protected the testimonies of God. See, our psalmist lived in a day when very few people had access to the word of God. It was likely that he was a teacher or a priest or a synagogue leader or someone significant in the community. And he's been trying to live faithfully. He's been trying to live in light of this word. And as a result, he's been mocked and scorned by those around him. And his prayer is, Lord, would you take away from me this scorn and contempt? And the psalmist goes on to reveal more of who has actually been opposing him. Read the following, verse 23. He says, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Princes have been plotting against him. It's a, it's a general word here. It means magistrates or civil authorities, chiefs, people in power have been speaking against him. They've been plotting his demise. And notice what he says. It's not behind closed doors. He says they sit plotting against him. This is a, a Jewish way of referring to people sitting in their very seats of judgment or power. They are openly opposed to him. And even though they plot, even though they slander and accuse, he continues to meditate on God's word. You know, his example of faithfulness is such that it's reached the ears of those in power and they're out to get him. The psalmist is someone who's under immense pressure because of his faithfulness to God. Now, I wonder if some of us this morning feel they can kind of relate to the psalmist's experience in some way. Maybe not to the extent of a murder plot against your life, but that feeling of being opposed by people because of your faith. You know, maybe you're at school and you attend the Christian group and you quietly hear people whisper, homophobe, racist. Maybe you're in the workplace and you've tried to faithfully negotiate a friend's same-sex marriage ever since you've done that. You've, you've, you've noticed a coldness towards you in the office. Maybe you faithfully shared the message of Jesus with a friend and they have responded to you by saying, oh great, this is what my, our friendship is about. I'm a project to you. Is that what this is? You're just out to make me a Christian. But also, maybe you're a follower of Jesus reading this psalm and shaking your head because you can't relate. Well, here's the truth for you. It's only a matter of time. In the words of the Apostle Paul to his beloved friend Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice the key word here. All. No exceptions. You cannot desire to follow Jesus and escape the reality that this world will oppose you. Well, what does the psalmist do when powerful people oppose him because of his faithfulness? We read again in verse 23, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. 
In the midst of persecution, facing threats against his life, he turns to meditate on the word. You see, meditation is a wonderful Christian tradition of taking a small passage of scripture, like a verse, and filling your mind with its truth. And in the midst of crisis, the psalmist turns to the word, selecting verses which he then turns over and over in his mind and his heart until the word of God fills his heart and mind. You know, it's little wonder that Paul follows his promise of persecution with the following in 2 Timothy 3, uh, 3, 16 and 17. He says the following a few verses later. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, Paul, in this very last letter, it's a letter with tears. It's such a precious letter. You should read it if you ever get a chance. To his beloved friend, his closest friend, Timothy, before he's martyred in Rome. He wants this closest friend of his, Timothy, to know something vitally important. That this word contains everything you need. Everything you need to please God for every work is in here. And it's likely as Paul sits in in a jail cell, waiting execution, at the front of his mind, is that this word contains everything you need to face persecution. But there's something even more than his need for guidance that drives this psalmist to the scriptures. We read the following in verse 24. He says, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. You see, God's word is the object of his absolute delight. He derives the deepest of joy from spending time reading the scriptures. And throughout this whole psalm, this is the constant refrain. I just picked three verses for you that that show us this from the psalm. There's so many more. He says this in verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Wouldn't we live in a different city if that was true of Sydney? Oh, how I love your Lord is my meditation all the day. Verse 97. And verse 103, I love this one. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey in my mouth. Now, no one is compelling this man to spend time in the word. When he's under fire, he goes running to the word because it's his absolute joy. It's his fount of endless delight. But here's the question I want us to think about as we come to the end of our time together. What do you do when the joy of this psalmist couldn't be further away from your experience? Maybe the truth is this morning you haven't been experiencing a joy or grace in spending time in the scriptures. Maybe you've tried a million different reading plans and they last for two weeks, then you fail. Time and time again, you feel like a fraud and a fake. So what do you do? Well, the writer of Psalm 119 and his great desire for God was only ever a foreshadowing of another. It says of him in the scriptures that he lived to do the work of God. He says himself, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He was not at home in this world. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was scorned and held in contempt, even though he was innocent. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ had come to live a life so perfect it would cover all our failings, to take our place on the cross, that through his death and resurrection, we could be reunited to God. 
And the reason we struggle so much to love the things of God, to spend time in his word and prayer, is that our hearts are broken. We were made to know and love God, to enjoy him forever, but our hearts have been corrupted by sin. And they don't work as they should. And so we love the wrong things. But when you put your faith in Jesus, he begins an inward work, changing you and renovating you from the inside out. And so to close our time together, I just want to address two different people or groups of people amongst us this morning, whether you're listening in online or present here this morning with us. Firstly, if you're new to following Jesus and you've never experienced the joy found in the word, I just want to encourage you this morning, put your trust in Jesus. Make him the Lord and Savior of your life. Your Savior, that you're trusting in him for his finished work on the cross, paying for all your sins. But more than just your, that he's your Savior, I think many people in this city have Jesus as the Savior, but not as their Lord. To trust him truly means to make him who he claims to be in your life, the Lord and King. To say, Jesus, you have lordship over my life. I will do what you say. You simply need to speak. And when you do that, God will begin the work of renovating your life as well, giving you the desire for him. And so I want to encourage you, if that's you, all you need to do is pray, speak to God, invite him into your life. And I'd also encourage you to tell someone, to find someone to read this word with because we benefit so much from having others who have walked before us to walk alongside us as well. But secondly, maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, but you've just lost your hunger. You've just lost your appetite for his word. And this morning as I'm sitting here speaking with the psalmist or sharing the thoughts and words of this psalmist, it's convicting you and you're realizing you've not been desiring the word like this psalmist. I just want to encourage you to repent, to turn from that, to confess it to the Lord, to say, Lord, I'm sorry for living this way. Ask the Lord to open your eyes to see wonderful things again in his word. Confess it to a friend who can pray for you and and maybe even ask someone to disciple you, to come alongside you and help you in the ways of following Jesus. Maybe to to read with you one-on-one. And another thing you could do is just to sign up to one of our Bible studies this year as well. Another opportunity to get stuck into the Word. Um, Every term there's going to be a Bible study either for the men or the women in the church. Well, as we close, I wanted to end with a story that I think just summarizes and captures the heart of this passage so well as we wrap up our time together. Uh, it's the story of a man called Richard uh, who went to high school with Pastor Rico Tice, who's a well-known pastor in the United Kingdom. And Richard writes the following. He says this. He says, I knew Rico at school, though not well. We were in different classes, though we played in the same cricket team. And I distinctly remember Rico's conversion at school. I suspect, if you asked most of our contemporaries, They too would remember it, even though it was over 30 years ago. Why was it so memorable? For two reasons. Firstly, the merciless reaction showed towards Rico. The constant public and private attempts to humiliate him and get him to relinquish his newfound faith, which went on for many, many months. Secondly, what really struck me was how Rico carried himself during such a difficult time for him. The easy option would have been to turn back or keep quiet, but Rico stuck to his faith and kept talking about his faith. Although I didn't realize this at the time, Rico's conversion and resolute faith sowed the first seed in my mind. Who was it that gave Rico the strength to continue down such a difficult path? He surely could not have done this on his own. That was the first stage in my own journey, which many years later led me to to Jesus. 
When I finally accepted Jesus into my life, one of the first things I felt I needed to do was to write to Rico, despite not having been in contact for over 10 years, to let him know how his journey and struggle at school had helped me on my way. And Rico Tice says, the moment he read that letter, he just cried because he had no idea how the Lord used his faithfulness. Well, would Richard's story remind us, friends, that we never know what God is going to do when we faithfully trust in his word, even in the midst of great opposition? Would we find joy-filled guidance, friends, as we feast on this word of God? Would you pray with me? Lord God, this morning as your church, we want to humbly come before your feet and we want to do the one thing we can do, which is to thank you. Lord God, how kind and patient you are with people so prone to wandering as us. Or time and time again, we fail in even listening to you or speaking to you, and yet you are ever forbearant and kind. And we know this because we've seen the heart of the Lord Jesus. So Lord Jesus, we pray and ask that you would help your church to constantly come to you, to find the sweetness and joy that's to be found in your word to ever dwell there at your feet, listening to you, reading and delighting in your promises to us, Lord God. And with the fruit of this all be, much glory and praise to him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.